My name is Peter. Once again, for those of you who are not here this morning, uh, I am the lead pastor here, one of the pastors. And today uh, and next Sunday, we've asked Christine Nakano, our family and children's pastor, uh, to give the word. So, Christine, come on up and share God's word with us. One night recently, I was up late channel surfing, and I ended up catching the last half of an episode of Extreme Makeover, the home edition. If you're not familiar with the show, basically what happens is that different families are nominated, and if you're selected, you're sent on this fabulous seven-day trip. And while you're gone, your friends, your family, your neighbor, professionals from the communities, they are from the community, they come together and they renovate your home. And they don't just make it look nice. I mean, they go over the top. You come back to this five-star like home. And I don't think that I've ever seen this show and not been moved to tears. It's pretty I challenge you to watch it and not cry. I know it's a made-for-TV reality show. I know that, you know, um, it's, it's supposed to pull at my heartstrings. But I genuinely believe that these people care about each other and that these volunteers really are trying to work in the best interests of the chosen family. And it's this beautiful thing to see all these different people come together and make this happen. You know, at the end is the big reveal, right? The family comes back from their trip, and the house is covered up by this great big vehicle, motor vehicle. And what do they do? They stand there, and then they go, move that bus. And then the bus goes, and then they say, okay, you ready, so-and-so family? And they run in, and they open the door, and then their eyes get all big, and their mouths drop, and they scream, and they fall to their knees, and they start crying, and everybody's cheering, and it's just just beautiful, okay? Then the host, Ty Pennington, he takes the family and he says, did you see this? Did you see how this is like your favorite thing? Or did you see how we took the scrap of this special thing and incorporated it there? And this designer, they were thinking about you when they did that. And did you, this is, meet so-and-so. This is the supplier who donated all this stuff. And I went, and he goes around and he acknowledges these individuals who contributed to this massive undertaking. It's really a beautiful thing when a group of diverse people come together to work on a project. Now, inevitably, do my thoughts turn inward? Do I think at some moment during the show, I wish somebody would nominate me. <laughs> I wish someone would send me on a trip and I could come back and my house would be all renovated and, you know, upscaled and, yeah. Do I think that there are people in that crowd who maybe don't care quite as much about the family they're serving as they care about being on TV? Yeah, probably. But come on, overall, the general populace, I think we as a people tend to like to be a part of something bigger than ourselves. Inherently, we like being a part of something good especially if it's large scale, especially if it's momentous and historic. Every time I see footage of Dr. Martin Luther King giving his I Have a Dream speech, I'm always thinking about all those little millions of faces in the sea of crowds, and I wonder, what was it like to be there? 
What a sacrifice it probably was for many of those folks to make the trek to Washington, D.C. It couldn't have been easy, but they wanted to be a part of it. Inside, they knew something good was happening. They wanted to say, I was there. I I took part. I, I heard him when he rallied the cry. And whether they agree with Barack Obama's politics or not, whether they ended up voting for him, those that were alive to see him inaugurated, I have to believe that people who were there, who witnessed the inauguration of our first African-American president, they had to have been emotional inside thinking, I was there, I was part of that movement that made this a real possibility, that brought this into being. That is cool. Now, our passage today comes from the book of Nehemiah. And Nehemiah was an incredible leader And he rallied a diverse group of people to take on this monumental communal undertaking. And like the volunteers of Extreme Makeover, this was a group that was literally about building something. But like the group that followed Dr. King, they were also about building a community, not just represented by the brick and mortar structures around them, but they were about building the reality of God's kingdom here on earth, seeing something of God's design fleshed out here. Now, I think that for some of us, we might need a little bit of context, and I appreciate that Kent provided a little bit of that for us, but I am a teacher by, by nature, and I like you to know that the Bible all fits together in, in one big story, and so sometimes people are surprised when they get the connections. So you all have heard of Abraham. Abraham was the father of us all. God called Abraham, and he said, Abraham, I'm going to make you a promise. I'm going to make you a covenant. I'm going to promise you all this land, and I'm going to promise you all these descendants to fill this land. And I'm going to be your God, and you're going to be my people, and I'm going to tell you the best way to live for you to, to enjoy life to its fullest. And, and, and then other people will see how great that is, and then they will be drawn in as well. And so that's sort of the premise. But what happened is that the people were unfaithful. They wanted to do the right thing. They had all the, 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 uh, the rules that, that God had given them for their own benefit, but they weren't able to keep it. And God said, you know what? I'm going to be faithful to my promise. I will deliver you, but you do have to suffer the consequences. And so for a time, you're going to be conquered by other people. And you're going to be kicked out of this land that I gave you. And you're going to have to live in exile for a while and be away from Jerusalem and the temple and your homeland. And so he did, and they were conquered by Assyrians and then Babylonians. And the Babylonians said, okay, you know, you go here, you go there, you go there. And they scattered the people, and there was just a a poor remnant left in Jerusalem. But then the Persians came into power, and they overruled over the Babylonians. And Cyrus, he had a a heart that, that was tender, towards religious freedom. And he said, you know what? All of you Jews scattered all over the region, if you want, you can move back to Jerusalem and you can start repairing your holy city. And so he started to allow people to then return to their homeland. And it's during this era that our story takes place. It's at the beginning of Nehemiah that we find out Nehemiah served in the king's court, the Persian king's court. 
Some people say he was the cupbearer, that he was the one who would taste the wine before giving it to the king. Others believed he was a eunuch also because he, he was able to go in the presence of the queen as well. They seem to have had a very familial relationship, so there was some good rapport between them. Now, what astounds me about Nehemiah is that he was probably born and raised in exile. I don't believe that he actually was ever in the Holy Land before, right? He was born in generations after all of this had happened, years after this. You know, Nehemiah is 150 years after the Babylonians came in and exiled people. So he, he still has these ties. He still has a, a, a rooted sense of his identity and connection to his people and his homeland, even though he's been serving this foreign king and been living in this distant land. Because when a brother or a relative comes to him and says, Nehemiah, it's just terrible. We went back to Jerusalem and it's in disrepair. The walls, they're all broken. And, and that just broke Nehemiah to the heart. And he just cried and he wept and he called out to God and he said, you know, we're so sorry. He included himself in this community of people and said, we have have failed to do what is right. And so we've suffered these consequences, but what a disgrace that your city lays in ruins. And he prayed and he prayed and he prayed. And and I believe that it was during this three-month period of praying and fasting that he began to make plans. He was this amazing leader, genius for details and strategy and execution. And then he, it would be too much to go into all the details, but it's such a great story. You have to go back and read it. It's not that long. Go back and read how he went to the king and how he asked him for these favors and the king granted him permission and he went back to Jerusalem, and he was named the governor for a time. And how at night he went out and he scoped things out and he kind of surveyed everything, and then he said, okay, this is what we're going to do. And he got all the people together and he said, we are going to get this thing built. All of us. It's going to take every single one of you, old and young, you on the outskirts, you over there, those of you that haven't even come back yet, you you guys got to move back. We need you as we need to work together to rebuild this wall. And that's what I want us to focus on in this story. Just, there's so much in in Nehemiah that I love. It's one of my favorite books. But for today, I think many of us, if we had read Nehemiah 3, you would have gone, two seconds, right? Oh, a bunch of names I can't, you know, and okay, we get it, right? God, he cares about all these people. He knows all their names. That's why it's in there. But you miss some of the stuff. I'm so amazed. Kent, didn't he make that engaging for all? Yeah. So, When you take time to really examine the little notes inserted in between here and there, the son of so-and-so, son and -and so-and-so, it says there were priests, the high priests, as well as common priests, (laughs) and it even says temple servants. So it was sort of the top of the order as well as the common folk. And it wasn't just the, the priests that were there. It says priests from surrounding regions came in. And then it would said sort of the middle class. There were goldsmiths. There were perfume makers. There were merchants. There were daughters. This wasn't just a boys-only club. The girls got to be a part too. And then it said that people started right where they were at. They worked right in front of their homes or right opposite where they lived. Jedediah, son of Haramoth, made repairs opposite his house. Hashibah carried out repairs for his district. Benjamin and Hashub made repairs in front of their house and next to them. Azariah made repairs beside his house. Priests made repairs, each in front of his own house. Were there some who didn't get on the bandwagon? Yeah. 
Some nobles from Tekoa said they were too good to work for the supervisors. So you know what the men of Tekoa did? They worked in two different places. They took on two different jobs. So did the people in Benui. He repaired two different sections. This was a massive undertaking. It was something that people believed in, and they came together, and they finished this thing in 52 days. With the help of God, they impressed the people who were watching around them, and they were wowed. Wow, how did, how did that happen? And you know what else? They didn't just do it under ideal circumstances. They did it as they faced massive opposition, people taunting them, people threatening them. The Bible says that in one hand, you know, they had the, the thing to make, I don't know what you call it, the thing to make the, the wall, and the other hand, they had a spear so that they could defend themselves. And people were working, and other people were standing guard. They had to take turns. These people had to come together and unify because there were these outside forces, and they had to stand firm against all the enemies. And you know what else they did? They prayed. They prayed as they worked. This book, Nehemiah, is filled with prayers. You will see that constantly. Nehemiah is calling on God, help us, Lord, protect us, Lord, bless us, Lord. We're doing this for you, Lord. And he calls the people and he rallies them and he says, let's pray together, community. This building of the wall, I call a communal act of worship. That's what this was. It was a community of God's people worshiping him with everything they have. As Pastor Peter said, I'm the relatively new pastor for children and families. I've been now 10 weeks with the kids upstairs. And the entire summer, we have been talking about worship. Just a sidebar. It used to be that we would call what they're doing right now children's church. I personally don't love that term. I want those kids to know that we, all together, all of us young and old, we are one body. We are the church, all of us. And what they're doing is kids' worship. And the only reason why they do it over there, which I love it when they're able to be with us, but really, I tried. I tried getting you guys to clap this morning. You people do not move. And those kids do not want to worship God standing there singing like this. We use a lot more movement and hand motions when we worship. And we don't take a lot of notes. When we learn, we tend to apply what we're learning through some representation of arts and crafts. So that is the difference. But what we are doing is worship. And I want them to know it. And we have spent every single week talking about what it means to worship and why we worship and how we worship. And you know what? We only spent one week talking about singing and dancing. A lot of times we said, oh, you know, we're going to have a time of worship. That means we're going to sing and dance in most of our minds. But I want them to know that worship means using their gifts and serving. I want them to know that that worship means employing their imagination and spending time thinking about the pictures that are elicited when they read scripture. I want them to know that when they're recycling at home, that is their worship because they're caring about God's earth that he has created. That is what we've been talking about. And so this week I thought, I'm going to talk to you too about worship. (sighs) I remember early on in my Christian journey, there was a worship pastor who taught us about worship. And this has always stayed with me. He said, worship is a response. You can't just come into the sanctuary and say, okay, let's start worshiping. You need to be confronted with God himself. You need to think about how God has acted in your life. And then you can respond to what God has done. That is worship. God is the subject 
He is the initiator. He is the catalyst. He presents himself to us. He's always revealing himself. He's always manifesting. He came in the flesh so that we could see him. And it's through our response, it's because of, of his presentation to us that we're able to respond in, or, in worship. It's because of his action in our lives that then we do something in return. Our church had been studying Romans. We've taken a break for the summer, but we're going to return to our corporate study of Romans soon. And eventually, we're going to get to chapter 12. I know it didn't feel like that in the first few weeks, but we will. But just to give you a little foretaste, chapter 12, verse 1 in Romans says, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, see, there's the presenting thing. God is presenting himself. In view of God's mercy, look, think about God's mercy. Now, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Basically, Paul is explaining that we have been presented with an act of God, with his mercy. And so our appropriate response then is to say, thank you. Oh my goodness, God, you are so wonderful. You are so great. And that this is our worship. Our living our lives in holy and pleasing ways is our response to having experienced his grace and mercy in our lives. And then from there, it's so cool because the transition as you go on further in the chapter says, now that you know this, Paul can elaborate. So you've been given all these gifts, so go and utilize these gifts that God has given to you. And I think that a perfect illustration of this comes from Les Mis, Les Miserables. I saw the musical twice, and I enjoyed it as a production. I liked the music, but really, I have to be quite honest, I don't think I totally got the story. And I realize I probably should have read the book, but it's pretty thick, and I'm pretty undisciplined and impatient. And so it really was to my benefit that they made the recent movie musical. (laughs) And I know that there are people who think, oh, musicals, right? How corny. They're always breaking out into song. It's so ridiculous. But do you know what I loved about this most recent Les Mis production? What was so different than the theatrical production, because especially for me, I usually sit in the nosebleed seat, so I'm just seeing sort of everything from bird's eye. But the thing that I loved about the most recent movie is the cinematography. They zoomed right in on these characters' faces, and I saw it on the big screen. So, you know, you saw Anne Hathaway, and her head was all shaved, and her face was all in anguish, and you felt the emotion, right? And so there is the scene Jean Valjean, right? He was a convict, and he had spent all these years in prison, and he's finally released at the beginning of the movie, and everybody is not giving him a break. They're like, hey, you know, you're a con. We're not going to help you out, and, and so he, he's just feeling really angry and embittered, and finally, a church lets him in and says, you know, we don't have much, but you can come and spend the night with us, and whatever we have, we share with you, and so he spends the night there, and even though he has been finally met with an act of love and grace, In the middle of the night, he decides to get up and steal the silverware, and he takes off. But the police find him, and so the police drag him back to the bishop, and they say, hey, this guy tells us that he was a guest in your home and that you gave him the silverware. What do you want us to do with him? And there's this amazing scene where, where Jean Valjean, this is, you can kind of see the guards behind him. They've thrown him down in front of the bishop. And I couldn't find a clip where they actually had the bishop and him in it. But the bishop says, you, you expect him to go, what? I was so nice to you. I let you in. What are you doing, you know, taking off of my silver after I've just been showing you some great. You know what he does? He says, 
Jean Valjean, what did you do? You forgot the candlesticks. These were the most expensive. Why didn't you take these? And he's like, what? What? Wait, what? And okay, I dare you, watch this and not cry. It is amazing. It's just like, wow, what an act of grace. He doesn't expect it. He doesn't deserve it. He knows he doesn't deserve it. And this bishop, you know, the, 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 the fancy French word for the police, they're like, <laughs> you know. And the, but the, the bishop guy, he, he's just so, t- the, the one that played in this one, the, some of the other ones, I think they still have a scowly face. But this guy, he just had this angelic face as he looks at him. And he says, Jean, Van Jean, Jean whatever your name is, here's, here's the, the candlesticks. Why didn't you take these two? And it was this transformative experience that turned Jean Valjean's life around. And he spent the rest of his days having turned from his bitter and hardened heart and instead began doing good and serving others. And you know what? It wasn't that his generous way of living was a means for earning more favor. It was the response to the bishop's act of grace. It was born out of his gratitude. He wasn't okay, now I have to go be good because he was nice to me. He was like, oh my gosh, I'm so grateful. I can't believe his kindness. Each one of us is like a Jean Valjean. You know, it's funny too because really it's hard to critique him. He was in prison for stealing a loaf of bread to feed his sister's starving children. So in some ways you think, oh, that's justifiable. But really the law is the law. He broke it. He deserved to be punished. And yeah, maybe we all pretty much were decent, we're good. Even when we do bad things, sometimes we try to do it for the right reasons. But you know what? We've all screwed up. We are all convicts. And you know, maybe it's not stealing. Maybe it's coveting. Maybe it's cheating. Maybe it's gossiping. Maybe it's lusting. Maybe it's acting without compassion or refusing to forgive or failing to speak the truth when called upon. But because of God's Son, because of Jesus who died on the cross in our place, we don't have to face the consequences that we rightly deserve. Instead of sentencing us to prison, God says, here's a bag of silver. My question for you today is how will you respond? We're just a few short weeks from the start of a new school year. And whether you have kids in your home or you're a student or not, we pretty much all operate on a school calendar, right? The church does, right? And we're about to start a new year, and there's all this enthusiasm, and you're probably buying new shoes and backpacks, and and maybe you're enrolling in your fall activities and stuff, and just a lot of excitement. But just imagine for a moment what it will be like in June. Kind of skip ahead as you're reflecting back on this year that's just about to begin. Now you're at the end of the year and you're reflecting back and you're thinking about it and you're like, hmm, remember the day when you got your first yearbook? What do you do? You pick it up and you go through the pictures. Do you look for your friends? No. You're like, where am I? What do I look like in here? Are there any unflattering pictures of me? Right? That's what you do. You start looking and you check. And, and then what if there are no pictures of you? What if you realize really the only one there was your classroom shot? But there are no candidates. 
And as you began to look at the pictures, you see, wow, these people, they look like they're having fun. Wow, I, I wasn't there for that. I chose to stay home and watch TV instead of go to the big game. I was afraid of being rejected, so I stayed home from the dance. I procrastinated on assignment, so I couldn't make it to the senior, senior trip. My friends didn't want to go with me to the play, even though I wanted to see it, so I didn't go. I was afraid it wouldn't be good enough, so I didn't try out for the band. But man, these pictures look like these people had fun. And maybe I missed out. And then you start to feel some sadness and some regret. Because there were opportunities there. But for whatever variety of reasons, you didn't take advantage of them. Don't let this happen to you. We're at the beginning of the year. You don't have to be sad. We're starting fresh, right? You have been set free. You have each been given a bag of silver. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? We at this church, we have walls to build. There are holes that need patching. There are weak spots that need fortifying. We cannot afford to spend time bickering among ourselves. There are common enemies that we need to rally against and protect ourselves from. So let us not be inwardly fighting with each other. Let us stand arm in arm. Let us each take a place right where we're at. Let us think about the gifts and the tools that God has given us, and let's get busy. And if someone says no, well, then just do things twice. Do their part too. Don't cry about it. We need everybody to pitch in. Every single man, woman, child, everybody. Pastor Peter just told you he spent the last six weeks planning out the next five years. He has a picture. It's like seeing the top of a puzzle box. He has this vision of what we're supposed to look like, where we're supposed to go. But he cannot do this on his own. It will not become a reality unless each one of us contributes what we have. We each are a piece of the puzzle, and it won't be the same without you. But I don't want you to feel guilted into this. I don't want you to do this because this is what Christians are supposed to do. This is the right thing. I have to serve my church. That's what God wants. This is our spiritual act of worship. This is the way that we get to say thanks to our gracious and merciful God. This is, this is what we want to do. So if you're like, oh, she's going to ask me to sign up and do something. Oh my gosh, don't, don't ask me to teach kids, please. First, think about God. And then respond. How you consider how you respond. Now, I have to admit, I'd be remiss if I left out a detail. This is not a storybook ending. Nehemiah doesn't end with a with a nice little red bow. You know what he does? They rebuild the wall. He calls everyone together. They read God's word. And they say, God, we're so sorry for all the ways that we failed you. And, and, and we're so glad for the ways that you've stepped in. And they have a big party. In fact, the kids are having a big party because they're talking about it today too. They had sweet drink and, and good foods. And they celebrated. And, and then they committed themselves. They said, you know what, God? We promise we're going to do better. We're going to live for you. We're going to do it right this time. And you know what? Nehemiah goes back to Susa, comes back a little while later. They're all doing their crummy thing again. And he gets so angry. He's like, you guys, you said that you promised you were going to live for God, and you didn't. And really, that's kind of how the story ends. <laughs> so I know, even today, we can get all excited and say, okay, all right, sign me up. I'm going to worship God. I'm going to, I'm going to commit myself to a living sacrifice. Just know in advance, I know that some of you won't be able to follow through. <laughs> but it's Okay. You know why? 
Because the good news is that God doesn't stop receiving us over and over and over again. Every time you come back to him, every time he's going to say, I don't condemn you. Here's a bag of silver. So right now we're going to enter a time of worship. But in order to do that, you need to take a minute. Maybe you need to close your eyes. And you need to think about being in that spot of Jean Valjean. You know that you've fallen short. But as you kneel before God, rather than receive his wrath and his condemnation, he says, I do not sentence you to prison. I do not condemn you. I have here to give you peace, wholeness, abundant life. Here's a bag of silver.